Coming up on Tech Nation, you may have first heard of Glenn DeVries when he flew into space with William Shatner aboard Blue Origin, memorable in itself. A short month after this flight, Glenn passed away in a plane crash. By happenstance, our interview with Glenn aired one year ago this week. Today you'll hear how his contributions will help us all for many years to come. Then, why the new FDA-approved treatment for yeast infections in women is different. I speak with Dr. Marco Taglietti, the president and CEO of Synexus. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2010, I spoke with Nicholas Carr, the former executive editor of the Harvard Business Review and author of the book, The Shallows. He asked a simple question. What is the Internet doing to our brains? He writes, we routinely become dependent on popular, useful technologies. He specifically used the word dependent and not addicted. I think we talk about too many things in terms of addiction these days. And even though I certainly, from my own experience, I know there's a kind of a compulsive quality sometimes to what you do online. I think the, the problem with talking about it in terms of addiction or, is that it makes it seem like it's just purely a personal matter and even a personal choice that we, you know, check our email every I can 15. stop c cocaine and email anytime. <laughs> so that That's right. <laughs> but, but what that kind of overlooks is the fact that our business expectations, employment expectations, social expectations, education expectations, they're all kind of pushing us toward feeling we have to be always connected. Um, so the hard thing about, you know, backing away a little bit is that you start to feel socially isolated or you start to feel like you're endangering your career. So it's it's not just a matter of, oh, I need to quit. It's how entwined is this technology in my everyday life and can I even quit? Yeah, your employer does not expect you to continue your cocaine habit. But, right. <laughs> but he, he, he does expect you to be online, maybe even when you're on vacation. In fact, a good right. friend of mine went to work for a French company and started, unfortunately, like July 28th and didn't understand anything about August and France. She almost <laughs> got fired <laughs> because, boy, she was working up a storm in August. She goes, these people, they're not here. Yeah. I can't find them. And it's like, it's French company. <laughs> then by the time she caught up with it, she was mildly embarrassed. But we're talking about, you know, in the U.S., our culture is you ought to be present. You may have flown around the world to do a deal. Well, we don't care what time it is there. You need to be responsive. And that's certainly a, a new culture, and it's not helped by all this modern technology. Right. And it's really crept in. Just in, you know, in you when you think about it, in the last 10 years or so, suddenly our kind of workday has expanded to when we from the moment we wake up, and often the first thing people do these days is check their iPhone or their BlackBerry when I they get out of bed. sleep with my laptop. You don't think that's wrong? <laughs> and it goes until you <laughs> until you go to bed. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people wake up at 3 and then do it some more. So, <laughs> so it really has. It's unlike other technologies that, you know, we've worried about in the past, uh, things like TV – we spent a lot of time watching TV, but it was actually segregated from a lot of our daily life, whereas uh, being connected with the Internet and, and digital media now is 
all day long. And a lot of people watch their TV on their computer. Right, which is another phenomenon that is really exploding now. You write that with all the new technology, now when you read, you get fidgety, lose the thread, begin looking for something else to do. I feel like I'm always dragging my wayward brain back to the text. The deep reading that used to come naturally has become a struggle. Is that true, Nick? That is true. And that was the the original inspiration for the book was my own personal experience. Um, and throughout my life, I've been a big reader and found it easy to immerse myself in, in books. And then you know, recently in the last few years, I've noticed I'll sit down with a book and I'll, you know, get a page or two in and in my mind, you can, I can almost feel it wants to behave like it behaves when I'm sitting at a computer. It wants to, you know, enough with this page. Let me jump to another site. Let me do some Googling here. Let me check my email. And I really, not only when I was reading, but I really found it a struggle to kind of tune out distractions and, and concentrate on one thing. And you you were, well, actually, your master's in English. I don't know if your undergraduate's in English as well, English yes, Lit. Yes, so yeah. you spent a lot of time just reading. Yeah. And that would be hard for you to do today. It would. And I began to connect that disability, as I saw it, with my use of technology. I've been speaking with Nicholas Carr about his 2010 book, The Shallows. It ultimately became a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and continues to be a bestseller on Amazon Today. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, we honor Glenda Vries, who recently flew into space on Blue Origin with none other than William Shatner. Shortly after that historic flight, Glenn passed away in the unexpected crash of a Cessna. In this interview from exactly one year ago, we hear his passion and how the company he co-founded made and continues to make such a difference in patients' lives, in drug discovery, in biomedical devices, and more. Then, the backstory of the new FDA-approved treatment to yeast infections in women. Dr. Marco Taglietti, the president and CEO of Synexus, joins me. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Glenn DeVries. Well, Glenn, welcome to Biotech Nation. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you write in your book that we are at the intersection of biological and technological revolution. What do you mean by that? So um, there are things that are happening now in medicine, and I mean this from a molecular medical perspective, that when I was starting my career, this is a quarter century ago, would have been science fiction, the ways that we're training the body to fight disease and the, the kinds of, of interventions that we can do inside cells and with individual genes. That was beyond rocket science back then. Meanwhile, also a quarter century ago, nobody was videoing with anybody over the internet. In fact, 
Nobody had smartphones. You know, we were all sharing computers if we were lucky. And, and so the world has changed so much in terms of the fabric of, of technology that connects all of us. And at the same time as all that stuff, again, the, the, the science fiction turns science and biology, that just creates, I think, an extraordinary opportunity um, for the world to advance at, at rates we just couldn't think of from a, a healthcare perspective. Well, I just think 20 years ago, you and Tarek Sharif founded Metadata to collect and manage data records for FDA clinical trials. And guess what? That hasn't changed. Not you. <laughs> the right. FDA trials haven't changed. 20 years ago, trying to, to do that and bring the, the FDA clinical trials into the information world, what did that look like? How different was it? So, so it, was, it was really something that was, um, for me, born out of frustration. You know, it, so we talk about how we can make these bits and bytes zoom around the world using connected phones and, and the Internet. Um, back then, you, you know the, the phrase sneaker net, like when you, you move something physically? <laughs> yeah. So I, I actually used sneaker net to get patient data. I, I was doing experiments at my lab bench. And I had the data from those experiments, and this was a, a data that was um, related to patients and their cancer progression. I had the data in a shared PC at the back of the lab. And to get some of the other data about the patients that was required for the analyses I was doing, I had to, in my sneakers, take an elevator, cross a street, take another elevator, log onto a computer, write data down on a piece of paper, walk the whole way back, and now re-enter it into the computer in my lab. And that Sounds almost ridiculous now, um, but actually that was exactly how not just my research was working, but that's how all clinical trials worked. People were copying data with pens from one place to another, and people were retyping it and sending it if you were really lucky on a disk, but probably on a piece of, of multi-part paper. And, uh, I bet a lot of uh, listeners don't even remember these. You would write on the sheet and it looked like one piece of paper and then you could separate it into four or five. One of which was the color goldenrod. Oh, nice. That... Whoever heard of that again? <laughs> yeah, Dump that color. That disappeared. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but so this just seemed like a, a huge burden in terms of getting what we were doing from a research perspective to the point that it could actually help patients. And so um, back then... Here, you know, we keep saying things like 20 years, and I said a quarter century. Here's a way to really date this um, conversation. Uh, we thought if you can buy a book on Amazon, why can't we do clinical research on Am uh, the way we do things on Amazon and, and do it online? The only thing you could buy on Amazon back then was a book. It was ancient history, right? And it was really that idea and just saying, can we get out of our way from an infrastructure perspective and get these innovations into the clinic to patients. That was the origin of Medidata. If we go forward 20 years, a number of things have happened in information technology, some of which you've mentioned, but also what's happened is the ability to decode DNA. We were not able to do that 20 years ago. Yeah, I think there's a couple things. One is, one is decoding. Even if you can read it, does it make any sense to you? And can you actually do something differently based on what you read? And, and I really think that's kind of the, the secret to how we need to think about healthcare and medicine is it's not just enough to have the data. It's just not enough to know the, the series of AGs, Cs, and Ts that makes up our genetic code. We need to know wh which of those genes, which of those individual um, base pairs actually makes a difference in terms of 
what my disease might be like or what I might develop or what medicine is right for me or wrong for me. And frankly, the problem of decoding that from our DNA isn't, I think, intellectually that much different than figuring it out from our blood pressure or from the way we move around all day. And, and I personally believe that the, the summation of all of that information is the secret to, again, I'll use the word decoding, what is best for us. I, I use the, the analogy of the Rosetta Stone a lot. So, you know, the Rosetta Stone has the same story written in three different languages. And the fact that it's written, repeated three different ways was the key for people to understand how to break the code, how to decrypt all of the hieroglyphics in, that were written in ancient Egypt. So you need to look at your, the genes, you need to look at the blood chemistry, you need to look at the sleep quality, you need to look at the tumor volumes, whatever it is, all in one stack like the Rosetta Stone, and then you really start to be able to decode. And, and that decoding is what is the, the thing that's going to lead to a better therapy. Well, in this last 20 years, metadata has, has provided services to uh, tens of thousands of clinical trials, millions of patients, and billions of data records. I have a funny question about that. Each of those clinical trials... How much crossover is there? How much information has been able to uh, be gleaned from their crossing over? Yeah, so it's actually, it's a great question because in some ways we, um, we haven't come that far in life sciences. And actually in some ways, I think we are, we are now this rocket ship on the information superhighway that's about to take us to new places. So you have a new great therapy, right? You've invented something and it's going to cure X. Terrific. But you need to prove that, right? And whether you're a life scientist or you took high school chemistry, everybody knows how you prove something in science. You have the experiment and you, you do something in a new way. You give somebody the new drug and you have a control, right? And in, if you're giving some people the new drug, you give some people a sugar pill or the standard of care and you then compare the two, right? Um, every good scientist thinks about the, the null hypothesis. Assume, even if you think it's the best drug in the world, right, you assume it doesn't work and you create an experiment that proves that you're wrong. That Actually, it's like a double negative. It proves that it does work. And so in, in these tens of thousands of clinical trials, yes, we are largely doing things that we were doing 20 years ago. And frankly, we're largely doing things that we were doing you know, hundreds of years ago in the world of medicine where we would have the new drug or the new therapy and the control. But because all of these trials are now connected technologically, we're starting to realize that let's say we have great new drug A and great new drug B and great new drug C. We think all of them might be interesting in one particular disease. We don't need to have a control group for A and a control group for B and a control group for C, we might be able to share the patients who are getting the sugar pill or the standard of care in a way that, that if you permit me to do a little math here, right? if we have 100 patients per group, per trial, in four trials, that would be 100 on each of the new drugs and 400 patients who would get the standard of care or the sugar pill. So you had a 50-50 chance of a patient going into any one of those four trials that you would get something that is not this new potentially GERT therapy. 
a sugar pill is a sugar pill. So if you're just taking all their measurements, you don't know which of the trials they're in, but they're actually good for all of them. Right. So, well, so now if we combine all that into what's really one kind of meta experiment, one big experiment, because we can connect it through technology, we can connect the data where people like me would have been running around in our sneakers, you know, with separate databases, but now it's all on one platform. This is what we do at Medidata. We can now say, all right, well, we're going to have for every four patients who are getting a particular drug, we're just going to have one control. So now I have a four out of five chance as a patient to get one of these great new drugs or potentially great new drugs. And actually, because we're not just comparing each drug to a control, each drug to a sugar pill, we actually can start to compare drugs A, B, C, and D at the same time and say, well, which one is best for any given patient? Is somebody like Glenn better served by drug B than drug A? And really, this is getting down to kind of the exciting ideas in precision medicine. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Glenn DeVries, co-founder and co-CEO of Metadata, which provides complete data collection, management, and analytics for clinical trials. All that data in the cloud. He's here today with the patient equation, the precision medicine revolution in the age of COVID-19 and beyond. Now, okay, Glenn, what is precision medicine? All right, so you mentioned this idea, well, it's the name of my book, The Patient Equation. Well, precision medicine is giving the best therapy to any given patient at the right time. And the reason that my book is called The Patient Equation is because the fact of the matter is, if we're going to make a decision like that, there is a mathematical equation that can help lead us to the best answer. And uh, we were talking about kind of the, the technology revolution, but also the, the biological technology that's out there now. And the therapies that we have are, are getting so much more sophisticated. That's great. But actually, if you look at um, a very sophisticated therapy that's going to work for a certain group of patients at a certain time, that actually means that the number of patients who might be well served for it is pretty small. We have to figure out who those patients are. And in medicine, we used to think about pretty simple equations. The, the example I love to use is a statin. And you know, a cardiologist listening is going to say, wow, Glenn has completely oversimplified this. So I apologize in advance. But you know, somebody has high cholesterol. Yes, no. Those are the inputs of the equation. And if yes, give them a statin. That's the output of the equation. Right? But if the inputs get sophisticated to the point of, well, um, for Glenn's cancer, who are the patients who benefited from a very specific molecular therapy? Did they have different genes? Were they born with certain genes or not? Did their cancers have certain mutations in, in individual genes or not? Was the amount of, of tumor burden, the amount of tumor in, in, in the bodies of patients like Glenn, similar to Glenn? And there's all this whole kind of stack, that Rosetta Stone of different pieces of information. And we look to see, is this particular medicine good for Glenn or not? Well, well I took what was one input, one term in an equation, if you remember your, your algebra, right? And now I've turned it into something where maybe there's 10 terms, maybe there's 100 terms of these inputs, and the output is what is the best possible medicine for me. So the patient equation is the math behind precision medicine. How much does the patient have to do to make that work? We've had generations of people going to the doctor and say, doctor, just tell me. <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute, if you're going to make that work, the patient has to do something. 
Yeah. So, so the patient, I think, well, in two levels, there is no, I think, artificial intelligence. There's no automatic math um, that's going to get you to the point that you know exactly the right medicine to give to a certain person because there's elements of emotion. There's, there's life decisions that need to go into how you um, are going to be best treated. So I'm not one of these people who thinks that, that the doctor-patient relationship goes away because of intelligence, because of uh, artificial intelligence or things like that. But there's another element, which is about the patient, which is that if you go back to this kind of stack that begins with our most basic genetic information and is built up into what's happening in our cells and our organs, um, we think of, if you get in high school biology, genotype and phenotype, right? Your genotype is your genes and your phenotype is your body. Well, yes, but your body is very much inclusive of what's happening in your brain, your cognition. And it's very much inclusive of how you wind up behaving based on that cognition and your physical capabilities. The way you move around, the way you think is as much your phenotype as is the amount of sodium in your bloodstream. And we're actually all, unfortunately, because of COVID-19, even starting to realize outside of medicine that actually where I move around to also matters from a medical perspective. You hear about contact tracing. You worry about quarantining when somebody's coming from a particular geography because there's a pandemic. All of this stuff is the inputs potentially to one of these equations for what the best medicine is. And the inputs have changed dramatically now that we have smart watches and all of what our phones can do and all the access we have to data and, and to store data out in the cloud, making it accessible. This is enormous about how much data can be there. Yeah. yeah. So actually, you know, just a, a little uh, metadata story, actually. You know, so we started this company to connect people in clinical trials, and we connected all the doctors and nurses and professionals because we assumed that they would have access to the Internet. Again, 20 years ago, some people thought we were crazy. They'd be like, well, what happens if the, if the doctor's computer breaks? And we, we would say, well, they're going to get their computer fixed because they want to check their America Online email for those who remember America Online. Yes. Now, the idea of not having a computer in an office is almost ridiculous. Well, the a same number thing, of computers in the office. If this one right. has a problem, you go to the next one. Yeah. And you also probably have at least one somewhere on your body. And that's what really changed our thinking around patients. Uh, I can tell you this. I was sitting watching um, Steve Jobs. I was in the room. At, Steve Jobs was obviously still alive at the time at an Apple developer conference where they were introducing the first software development kit, the first way to write apps for the iPhone. The iPhone was just a couple years old. So none of what we do and think about today existed. Again, this is just over a decade ago. And Steve Jobs starts talking about how many iPhones Apple sold. And he was talking about it to get all the software developers in the room excited to write software for phones so they could sell it to lots of people. Well, I'm sitting there in the room thinking, hold on a second. They're selling all these phones. This means all these phones are going to be in people's pockets. This means the same kind of assumption that we would have made about doctors and nurses having access to a computer. This means that patients are going to have access to the Internet. Like we call it mobile now. We call them smartphones. We didn't have those names back then. But the, the fabric that connects the world will be that much more pervasive to all people. And I think that's really one of the exciting trends. Like I said before, we, we still do the same stuff in clinical trials. We still measure stuff. We still compare things to controls. But now we can do that directly with patients just as easily, sometimes more easily than we would do it 
connected to a physician. And that means the kind of evidence that we're getting is probably not just better, but might even be more relevant to the patients themselves because it's related to their day-to-day activities, not the view that a physician might have of them one day in their doctor's office. Now, you tell a lot of stories in the book about various patients and how they make their patient, their personal patient equation, <laughs> they contribute and connect. And so let's let's pick out one. One thing I like to pick out are people with chronic conditions, uh, such as diabetes or asthma or others that you've listed. Do you want to pick one of those and talk about how they can proactively, you know, be a part of this patient equation? The uh, the book starts um, with, uh, with the story of a, a guy, Jack Whalen, who sadly passed away, but um, uh, he really inspired me. Um, uh, I met him professionally and we got friendly. He actually uh, would come and speak to engineers uh, at Medidata because he, I, I think, kept himself alive with Microsoft Excel. Uh, that may sound ridiculous, but if you look at a clinical trial, and obviously I work on lots of them, you, you kind of look at the progression of a patient from the day that you start the experiment, that's what it is, to you know the end of the experiment for that particular patient. Did we help that patient get better? Yes or no? Hopefully yes. Well, that's not the rest of the patient's life, right? What I was just saying, we, we, we're living creatures. We're not static. And it, the clinical trial might have worked great for Jack um, for a couple of years. That's a true story. Um, but then his cancer, like many cancers, was able to figure out how to kind of evade the therapy that he was on. And he would go on a different clinical trial or he would get given a drug that was approved for a different cancer, but his doctor and he decided to try it for the cancer that he had. And Jack was the first person I, I know who had an Excel spreadsheet and he plotted patient equation style mathematically the progression of his disease across all of the different treatments that he had. And he could actually see when he was getting better or worse with different experimental drugs and drugs that were on the market. And he took charge of his healthcare. And he really was on top of it all because of the way he thought about data and engineering. Now, Jack was a super smart guy and really, I think, was taking great care of himself. But he had a vision for how this could work that now I think we can make a reality for almost everybody. Um, of course, the patient has to be motivated. Of course, we have to take care of our own health care. But we don't have to be mathematical savants and know how to use Microsoft Excel. We can take the drugs that we're getting. We can take the, the way we're being treated um, from a medical perspective and start to have things on our phones, in our pockets, that are, in some cases, automatically making these plots for us, helping us make these decisions, giving us a view of our health and our health care that we wouldn't have had when everything was in charts separated by walls and cabinets and miles and miles between hospitals. Everything being in the cloud, as you said before, making it accessible in our pockets from anywhere matters in terms of managing our healthcare. And the idea of Excel, so many people use that for all kinds of things. You don't think about using it for your healthcare, but what you can do are track things that are important to you. Does your knee hurt when you do this or don't do this and it stopped hurting here or whatever parameters you want to put in your life that are a part of what you think is your quality of life. This is a tremendous change in our attitudes towards ourselves. Yeah, I would actually take that even a step further. I think the the establishment, quote unquote, in terms of thinking about things that are probably more physiological, but what you do care about is hanging out with your family and friends, going to work, um, going on vacation. There's probably 
information that the patient cares about in terms of how they're able to achieve those goals that actually feeds into the patient equation that will help the medical establishment make even better decisions. You're listening to Tech Nation, this 2020 interview with the recently passed Glenn DeVries, the co-CEO of Benadata, includes insights from his book, The Patient Equation. Our interview will continue after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, why the new FDA-approved treatment for yeast infections in women actually is different. I'll speak with Dr. Marco Taglietti, the president and CEO of Synexus. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Glenn DeVries, who recently passed after an historic space flight with William Shatner on Blue Origin. We're talking about his insights and his book, The Patient Equation. Well, you talk about everybody. I got to tell you, even the health insurance people don't get off the hook here. (laughs) But one of the areas I want you to talk about is value-based care. What does that mean? And how is it different from today? Yeah, so so it, it's going to be, I, I hope, a really interesting transformation, right? Um, today, basically, people in healthcare get paid for doing work, um, and that that seems intuitive. Um, but you know, you could take a patient and you could give them, let's talk about precision medicine again, the exact right medicine for them at the right time, and they're cured, or they they at least get better. Um, their disease is managed, if that's the case. Um, or you could not give them the best medicine. And maybe it's not even your fault. It's just that that medicine didn't work. Um, But the patient isn't cured or the patient doesn't get better. In value-based care, in that second scenario, you don't get paid. You get paid when things work. And what's nice about that is it creates an incentive system where everybody who is involved in healthcare whether it's the insurance company, whether it's the patient, whether it's an employer, whether it's a physician, 
everybody's incentives get aligned. Everybody wants to be more productive. The, the country that you live in wants you to be a productive citizen that is going to work and contributing to GDP and consuming things, right? And you want to be walking around and hanging out with, like I said, friends and family. And now everybody who is taking care of you medically, everybody who's creating new tools for healthcare all wants to figure out how well we can help you realize those goals, how productive we can make you in society, because that's when they get paid. That's all value-based care is. The question then is, how do you implement that? And, and how do you um, create an environment where you can actually measure how well people are doing? Well, that's why it's a part of this um, story of the patient equation is because of what you were just saying. We need to measure not just what's happening in people's cells. We need to measure what their quality of life is, how productive they are. Um, those are the inputs to the, what really, I think, constitutes value to a patient. Now, everybody is seeing all of these medical devices, but you make the point, it's not just the devices, it's the, it's the equations behind it. What do you mean by that? Yes. So um, actually, the, the continuous glucose monitor is a great example of it, right? The, the, the medicine in that case is, is insulin. And the amount of insulin that is correct for you as a diabetic right now is based on your current blood glucose. So the input, the glucose, is related to the output, how much insulin you get. Input, output, there, there's an algorithm in there. There is a mathematical equation that connects one to the other. And, and I expect, I'm actually really hopeful, that what we'll see is more things like that, where in COVID, you can't go to the hospital. But maybe if there's a, a medical device that is delivering the drug in home, we can even take sophisticated infused therapies, things for advanced cancers, things for rare diseases, that will revolutionize the way we think about not just the medicines, but the delivery of those medicines. It was not that long ago that no one had access to all the trials that were going on. And now we realize, boy, there's a whole lot of data out there. Are we going to be able to get to the point where individuals can have access to trial data? Is, or is that not really relevant? No, I, I think it's hugely relevant. Um, uh, frankly, I, I think it's, if we think about it in trials, it's a little bit of kind of a proxy to access to healthcare. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, there was an article um, in, in Nature Medicine, and I have no way to describe these the two maps in it other than kind of haunting. Um, it, it's a picture or two pictures, one with transport like a car and one walking of how far people are from a hospital. And can you get there in minutes or can you just take more than a day to get to a hospital? And you see these maps and there are a lot of people where it's more than a day. And that includes North America and the United States of America in ways that you, know, you just don't think about. When you look at a clinical trial, you see that it's largely affluent people who live in nice neighborhoods because that's where the academic medical centers are. And you see these biases in the populations that go into the trials that do not reflect the rest of the planet or the rest of the country. You need a representative sample of what you want to see the, the safety and efficacy of your drug like in the rest of the world. So how do you solve this? I think this problem of access can get solved with the digital technologies because we can help people find the trials that will benefit them from their computers, from their phones. We can connect to them remotely. We don't need them to 
make that journey away from their work, away from their families, if they even can make that journey to get to a clinic. And even some of the stuff that we were just talking about in terms of this combination of, of not just drugs, but drugs with devices and the drugs, devices and apps. This means we can, we can get these therapies to people where they can take them in their homes without having to be in the same room at the same time as a doctor or a nurse. So you know, will technology solve every problem we have in access to healthcare? No, but I think it can be a huge component to solving those issues moving forward. And we've always talked about who is your doctor and what can you get in terms of geography? Well, I live here, I live right next to this, or I live a far distance away. Or it's like, hey, once you get on the internet, it doesn't matter how far they are away. Cleveland is as close as uh, Sri Lanka. You know, it's like, where, where, yeah. where yeah. are you? And, and, and these, these changes in, in technology, um, both biological and digital, mean that, that actually not only can we interact online, but, but maybe we can actually get the therapies working remotely the same way that an interaction would happen remotely. And I, that, I think, really puts us into an exciting new world of equality from a healthcare perspective that is scalable. Well, up until COVID hit, uh, we had pretty much accepted in the pharmaceutical area that it took 12 to 15 years to go from the lab bench to an approved product and roughly $2 billion. And it could take longer with a vaccine. Boy, they're tricky. And then COVID did hit. And now we're looking at this acceleration of clinical trials. Uh, will this have a permanent effect, do you think, on clinical trials? I, I think it will. Um, you know, we're just talking about value-based care and aligning incentives and, and gets everybody to behave differently and better. Well, there, there sure is a great way. Well, I shouldn't say a great way, but there sure is a, a, a reliable way to get people incented to figure out how to get a vaccine into the market faster. And that is to have the entire planet potentially sick from it. Um, and I think what's happened is the world, not just the life sciences industry, not just regulators, but physicians, patients, all now are getting educated about this process of developing a therapeutic and making sure that it's safe and effective. You know, I, I spent the last 25 years trying to explain at dinner parties what I did in clinical research. I don't have to explain that anymore. Everybody understands it to your <laughs> yeah. point. Um, and and I, I, think, I, I think there's no going back. Uh, and I mean that in a good way. I, I think that, that the world has realized through this common, unfortunate shared experience um, that regardless of what the source of medical misfortune is, there are better, faster ways to work. And frankly, a lot of people, um, and, and I'm not uh, highlighting things that, that Medidata has done or I've done, uh, that so many people that I've met at so many institutions and so many companies um, from the last 20 years whose ideas were regarded as kind of like, well, maybe that'll work, but that's kind of out there. Um, the risk reward, I don't know what the, you know, the risk seems high. Well, if the reward is that we can take those 12 or 15 years and turn it into two, if it's taking those billions of dollars and, and turning it into hundreds of millions or, or whatever the reduction is, I think people now are aligned in that we have to do those things. So we're seeing a healthy appetite to do things differently and better. And there is absolutely no reason why we should be dialing in that back once we're through the pandemic. If, if anything, I've been pointing out to people, I mentioned before, people aren't going for their chronic disease management. Um, it, it, I don't know anybody at this point who doesn't know at least one person who had to pause 
for example, their cancer therapy because they couldn't go to a medical center during the pandemic. And even people who are totally healthy, you probably didn't go for your checkup. So the world's going to be on average, I think, sicker after the pandemic than when it started. You know, the human, the human population is a living, breathing thing, just like us as individuals. And we're not going to come out of the pandemic looking good because we didn't take care of ourselves as well, because we were busy dealing with this virus. Well, the, the need to get better medicines into the, into the hands of patients and, and the physicians who are prescribing them, that's something that has now been dialed up, not dialed down. And that's another reason why I am very optimistic about this kind of new world being here to stay. Glenn DeVries passed away on November 11, 2021. While he may mostly be remembered from his spaceflight with William Shatner on Blue Origin, this interview demonstrates that he made a real contribution to our lives, which continues to live on. His book is still available, The Patient Equation, The Precision Medicine Revolution in the Age of COVID-19 and Beyond. You're listening to Tech Nation. Millions upon millions of women suffer from yeast infections each year, mostly in silence. Today, I speak with Dr. Marco Taglietti, the president and CEO of Synexus, about a new FDA-approved treatment, why it is different, and the science behind it. Marco, welcome back. Uh, thank you, Maura. Um, I'm happy to be here. Now, when last you were on, we spoke about serious invasive fungal infections. What do we mean by invasive? What do we mean by serious? Well, the fungal infections, so fungi, can enter inside the body, and this is why they are called invasive. So we are talking infections of the bloodstream, of internal organs like a kidney and liver and brain. And these infections usually happen in patients who are immunocompromised. So think about cancer patients or patients undergoing a transplantation, bone marrow transplanted patients. In these patients, the immunosystem is severely compromised. And in these patients, the fungi can get inside the body of the patients, causing very severe infections with high mortality. We are talking today still 20, 40% mortality uh, with the best available treatments. Now, we all have fungi, though. Isn't it normally part of being human? Absolutely. Actually, fungi are everywhere. And of course, there are many different types of fungi. There are actually the fungi, the mushrooms, that are even good to eat. But the fungi can be also causing condition and diseases. They are ubiquitous and they are part of a normal flora of uh, the human body. And they are in the air we breathe. We have in systems, immunosystem that allows these fungi to stay out and not to enter inside the body. But these fungi, they can grow on our skin, on our mucosa, and then can cause infection when they start to grow out of control. So fungi can cause many different types of infection for very mild ones, like, for example, infection of the nail or infection of the mucosa, or can cause very severe infection when they get inside the body. Now, something like a candida, that would that could be, you could have a real problem, for instance, in your mouth. 
absolutely. It's called the thrush. It's a infection that happens uh, again on the mucosa of the mouth. Uh, typical happen, typically happens either or in patients immunocompromised, but it's not uncommon also in uh, young uh, children. Very, very common will be um, infection of the uh, of the vaginal mucosa, and uh, these are called yeast infections. Uh, very, very common in women. I understand that uh, that fungi are very much like uh, human cells, so they're difficult. There's a challenge to treating treating fungi. You're absolutely right, uh, Moira. What happens is that uh, the cells of the fungi, from a uh, metabolic machinery point of view, are very, very similar to the human cells. And therefore, when you try to kill them, well, you may end up also to damage the human cells. This is why it's so difficult to find good treatments uh, against fungi. In fact, there are no more than eight or nine approved treatments for the management of uh, uh, invasive fungal infections. And this is uh, because over the last 60 years, uh, when the first antifungal treatment was uh, was introduced, only a handful of products were found to be effective and not to be damaging the human cells due to these similarities in the metabolism of the fungi and of the human cells. Can we group these, you know, seven, eight, nine treatments? Are they all doing about the same thing? So we have uh, three major classes of antifungals. One that uh, was uh, introduced about uh, 60 years ago, the polyens. The, there is one product in that class, amphotericin B, was the very first one, was introduced in the late 50s. It's a product that is still used today, despite being very, very toxic. Then, about 40 years ago, uh, a new class was introduced, the azoles. The azoles have been very successful because are products that can be given both intravenously orally, or even as a topical product, so as a gel, cream, or powder. Now, you mean by azoles, that's A-Z-O-L-E. So if you look on whatever you have, if the last five letters are A-Z-O-L-E, it's one of the azoles. Absolutely. All the azoles, they end with the name that says nasals. So... And then the last class that was introduced was about 20 years ago, actually more than 20 years ago, and it's called the kinocandians. They have been shown to be very effective, but they can be given only intravenously. And therefore, the type of infection in which they can be used is, is very limited to patients with very severe infections. So you have three classes and about eight or nine products distributed among these three classes. And so what is Synexis doing? Synexis, we are focused on developing novel antimicrobials. Our major asset is an antifungal for uh, use in uh, both uh, life-threatening invasive fungal infections, but also in uh, infections that are difficult to, to treat, where we need both an oral and an or an intravenous product. The product is called Ibresafungerp. It's a tongue twister. 
so I will not ask you to repeat it. But uh, it's a product that has shown to be a new class with a completely different mechanism of action. And therefore, is a product that uh, can be used to bring something new to the treatment of fungal infections. The, the, product, the, uh, the product is uh, currently in a development for invasive fungal infections and more recently has been approved for the treatment of yeast uh, infections. Now, what exactly does it do? I mean, as that's so different from the azoles or anything else. Well, the uh, Ibrisa Funger, and actually let me use actually the brand name, which is much easier to say than Ibrisa Funger. The brand name is Bresafem. Bresafem has a, a new mechan- a mechanism of action that breaks down the protective shelf around the fungi. By breaking down this shell, uh, the outside protective shell, the fungi, the yeast will die. And this is one of the key attributes of this drug, is a drug that is fungicidal. In other words, it kills the yeast. Other products like the easels that right now are the only product available for the treatment of, uh, uh, of many type of uh, candida and yeast infection are fungistitic. They block the growth of the fungi, but they don't kill it. So they need the effect also the body getting clearance over time of the infection. And that means that sometimes some yeast can survive, grow, and then causing the yeast infection again. So our product, Brexafen, is a novel antifungal of the new class with this fungicidal effect that will allow a rapid clearance of the infection. Well, congratulations on this FDA approval. It's very new, I know, and and lo- always a long time coming. Um, and let me spell for people, uh, Brexafem, B-R-E-X-A-F-E-M-M-E. I mean, that's that's what when you're in audio, <laughs> you got to spell. So, but let me ask you this: this is this is a tablet or tablets? Uh, how many do you have to take? I mean, how over how many days? Brexafem is a one-day treatment. It is four tablets, two tablets taken in the morning, two tablets taken in the, in, in the evening, one day, and that's it. That's the treatment approved for the yeast infection in women. And when do you see relief? Actually, in a very few days, the infection is cleared. We assessed in our clinical trials at the day 10, was complete clearance of infection in a majority of patients. And then when we checked again the women uh, 15 days later, so about one month after receiving our treatments, even more women had the infection clear because there was a complete clearance and healing of all the lesions and therefore all symptoms would, uh, were treated. Uh, the treatment was very well tolerated. Um, the side effects, 
that we observed, we observed in a minority of patients, the majority of patients did not report any side effects. And the side effects that were reported most commonly are the type of side effect that you will expect when you receive an oral treatment. Uh, there were some loose stool, some uh, some uh, nausea, uh, some uh, abdominal pain, and uh, in some in some patients where was also a very few patients some dizziness. Now, how did you set up these clinical trials? I mean. First of all, you have to have women with uh, yeast infections. I mean, do they is it by going to their doctors? Do you contact their doctors? How did that work? How did you design it? Actually, that is a fascinating part of our job. We design a protocol, uh, in other words, how we intend to give our product and how we intend to assess its efficacy and safety. Then we recruit doctors willing to try our product on their patients. We talk with the doctors, they talk with the patients, they explain the protocol, they explain that this is an investigational treatment, and uh, uh, patients can volunteer to enter in the study. They receive the treatment, they are being assessed regularly, and uh, at the end we collect all these data to assess the efficacy of the, uh, and the tolerability of the treatment. It was a uh, Actually, very interesting, the fact that uh, we were expecting that probably was going to take uh, uh, about one year to find all the patients willing to enter our study. On the other hand, what happened in less than seven months, we had all patients enrolled because both doctors and patients were eager to try something new. Because that is the biggest frustration, is the lack of alternative to ASL to treat yeast infection in women. And therefore, when they were offered, these patients were offered the possibility of trying something new, something with a different mechanism of action, a real alternative, both doctor and patients were truly eager to be part of this experiment. And I would like here publicly to thank all the patients and the doctor that helped us to develop this drug. It's a little hard to figure out uh, how widespread this is. People don't sit there in common, you know, parlance and say, yes, you know, we went to the store, we uh, played basketball, and oh yeah, I have a yeast infection. People don't talk about this. <laughs> but in truth, in truth, women don't talk about this. Um, how, how many prescriptions or how many uh, over-the-counter types of treatments are purchased every year in the United States? Hey, Moira, yeast infection is so common. Just to give you an idea, more than 75% of women worldwide will have some episodes of yeast infection in their lifetime. And probably half of them will have multiple, recurrent, difficult to get rid of episodes. So I expect actually that many of your female listeners will have experienced personally yeast infection or know someone who did it. But it's interesting because uh, despite being so common, uh, as you mentioned, uh, yeast infection is something that is talked very little, probably because uh, many uh, women suffer this condition in silence, in secrecy, not telling to their partner about it, maybe feeling ashamed. And women should not feel ashamed 
because of yeast infection. Because something I want to be very, very clear. Yeast infection is not a sexually transmitted disease. It's not a sign of poor hygiene. Yeast infection is the results of an imbalance in the environment, in the so-called vaginal microbiome that allows the yeast candida, which is, as I mentioned, ubiquitous yeast, to grow. And this imbalance can be due to an antibiotic treatment, hormonal changing, small lesions, but, uh, or medicine that may decrease the efficiency of the immune system of the, of the woman, allowing the yeast to grow. So there is nothing to be ashamed of. And it's a very, very, very common condition. In fact, as you, uh, as you mentioned, there are two types of treatments. Topical treatments, like uh, gels, creams, ointment, and we uh, will be applied locally. And they are available over the counter without prescription in any pharmacy. And last year, there have been more than 18 million units sold for the treatment of vaginal yeast. In fact, if you go in any pharmacy, there is also a section in the pharmacy, in the women care section, for offering topical antifungal treatment for yeast infection. But uh, topical products, they don't work well in many women. They probably work well for mild infections. But uh, in many women, you need something stronger. You need something orally. And there is only one oral product approved for yeast infection. That is fluconazole which has been approved more than 25 years ago. And just to give you an idea of the size of the market, last year there have been more than 17 million prescriptions of fluconazole. And that is, gives you an idea how many millions of women are suffering of this condition. And unfortunately, easels have limitations and... Uh, and therefore, there is a need for something new because this is a field where there has been no innovation for the last 25 plus years. Marco, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And I hope you'll come back and see us again. Thank you so much, Mora. It was my pleasure to be here today. Thanks. Dr. Marco Taglietti is the president and CEO of Synexus. More information about Brexifem is available on Synexus. Dot com. That's S-C-Y-N-E-X-I-S, Synexus.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and Biotechnation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.